Well, today we come to the final week of our series titled Growing in Worship. And our desire with this series has been to encourage us as a church to press into worship and to grow in our expectations of what God can and will do in and through our worship as a church. If you remember back to the first week of our series, we looked at John chapter 4, and we saw the priority of worship, that God is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And we saw that that means that God is making a worshiping people for himself, and he's doing this by opening their eyes to the truth of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and satisfying their hearts with a continued experience of the glory of Jesus Christ. In the second week, we turned our attention to Psalm 43 to see the heart of worship. And we also saw how we are given things that we can do when our heart is far from worship. Pastor Steve showed us that God is meant to be our exceeding joy. And that we are pursuing him in his presence. And Psalm 43 beautifully shows us how to cry out to God. And to ask him to send out his light and his truth into our hearts to lead us to worship him. Church, that's a wonderful thing that we should know. We are called to worship God, yes, but God does the miracle in our hearts to cause us to worship him. It's such a beautiful thing that he hasn't left us on our own and just said, come, worship me, come, declare my praise. But he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you my spirit inside of your heart. I'm going to send out my truth through your word, and I'm going to raise in you an affection and a desire to worship me. He has done everything. Last week, we covered Psalm 95, and we looked particularly at the way we worship. We saw that God calls for us to sing joyfully praises to his name and to encourage others to do the same with us. We saw that our worship involves humbly bowing down before God and using other physical expressions to encourage our hearts to be more aligned with the affections that we should have in worship. And then we saw that we're commanded to keep our hearts softened towards his word. Each of these weeks have shown us that God is who we are running after. His presence is what satisfies our hearts the most. And the essence of worship is delighting in and responding to the glory of God. So when praying about the final week of this series, when thinking over, God, what would you have for us to close with? I was led to end with a sustaining vision of worship that I hope and pray by God's grace will fuel a continued pursuit of growing worship. You see, it's not just four weeks that will help us to grow in worship, but a continued pursuit of God and his presence, of delighting in him and worshiping him. And so I want to give us a vision to fuel that for days and weeks and years to come.
Now, we all know what it's like to have a vision for our future, right? A desire for something that we long to see happen. For some of us, that's a vision for our career, something that we're pursuing for our career. For others, it's a vision for our family or our children. That vision leads us to arrange our lives in certain ways in order to see it come to fulfillment. Decisions that we make are influenced by it, like our education or our employment or our schedules and our time or where we live. All to see that vision come to fulfillment. And visions for your life and your family are good things to have and to pursue. But what I want you to see this morning is that they are ultimately temporary. And I want us to have a vision that is everlasting. A vision that continues beyond this world. Listen to the words of Revelation 7, 9 through 12. The Apostle John is looking to heaven. He says, and after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. You see, this is one of the glimpses that were given into what eternity will look like. And what we see is every nation, tongue, and tribe worshiping God. That's what I want to leave us with at the end of this series. A vision for everlasting international worship. I want to end our series on growing in worship in this way because I really think that if we can take hold of a vision like this, it will fuel a continued passion for worship, and it will influence the ways that we choose to direct our lives. Because church, a heart that longs to see the nations worship God is a heart that worships God. A heart of worship delights so much in the glory of God that it responds in proclamation that desires others to join in. And I think a vision for everlasting international worship will help our hearts to grow in worship now on this earth. And so to set this vision into our hearts, I want to look together at Psalm 67. Psalm 67, it's slowly becoming one of my favorite psalms. Let's just begin by reading it together. Psalm 67. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The Psalms are beautifully challenging. And they're challenging because through them, we are able to see the desires and the responses of the people of God to who he is, to how he acts, and to what he calls us to pursue. I've heard it said that we should read the Psalms sympathetically, meaning that we should seek to understand and agree with their desires. And Psalm 67 encourages us towards this because of why it is written. It has been called by some to be the Old Testament Lord's Prayer. In some churches' liturgies, it's set to be sung at every service, and you can see why. Now, the first thing we should notice is its title. Now, when you read your Bible, you'll have titles that are usually in bold. Those are titles that the the editors of the uh, edition that you have have put in, giving you a summation of it. But when you get to the Psalms, usually you'll see maybe an italicized or an all caps in a different kind of font. You'll see another title in the Psalm. And that's in the original manuscript. That was given to the people of Israel so that they would know how to use this Psalm. Notice what the title says in the first line. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. The title doesn't name its author, but it gives its recipient and it gives its purpose. It's given to the choir master to be sung among the congregation of Israel with stringed instruments. In some ways, it's slightly funny to be preaching on this psalm. I feel like we should just sing it. And on this side of the cross, we should recognize that what this means is that this song has been given to the church for us to sing as the people of God. Now, songs by nature speak for us. They encourage our hearts to desire and to proclaim certain truths. And church, because we know that God inspired the authors of the Psalms, This tells us that this psalm is filled with a desire that God wants for us to have. He has given us this song to sing so that we will have its desires, so that we will make its request for ourselves. It's a beautifully challenging thing because if you read it, as I have over the years, I'm constantly left to ask myself, do I desire these things? 
Now when we study the Psalms, we don't study them like we study narrative or like Genesis or like we study Paul or the epistles. They're poetry. And so one of the most helpful things in studying a psalm yourself can be starting by just understanding what its structure is. How is it composed in order for us to see where the main point or the emphasis lies? Now there's a couple different suggestions of how to divide this psalm. And your Bibles themselves might have it printed in a certain way, leaning you uh, towards a way to structure it. Some suggest that verses one through three are one stanza, four through five another, and six through seven the third, because each one of them ends with all peoples responding to God in praise or fear. I think that's a possibility. However, I would suggest dividing it a little differently with verses one and two being the first stanza, three through five being the second, and verses six through seven being the third. And I even think we should probably see it as what is called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device employed by authors where ideas are presented and then repeated in reverse order. So the way to think about it in a form of letters is you have A, B, B, A. Same themes on the end, same theme in the middle, repeated. Oftentimes in chiasms, you'll have an insertion of another idea in the middle of this repetition, which is meant to kind of narrow you in to see that as the main point. So if you notice, verses one and two and six and seven are parallel in themes, both of them involving blessing and God's glory spreading on the earth. Then when you get to verses three and five, they are exactly identical. And then the assertion, insertion of verse four becomes what is emphasized. If the structure wasn't clear enough, Alexander McLaren comments on verse four, its place and its abnormal length mark it as the core, round which, as it were, the whole is built up. For it is as if encased in two verses, Psalm 67.3 and Psalm 67.5, which in their four clauses are a fourfold repetition of a single aspiration. If we include the addition of the Selah as another mark of importance, and we note the frequency of the references to nations. 15 out of 53 words in this psalm is a reference to the nations. This all confirms that the emphasis is on verse four. And because that's where the focus is of this psalm, what I think is most helpful is to start by observing that and then work our way out to see how the other two pieces connect to that. So I wanna start by observing the core of verses three through five together. Look there with me. What I see in this core is a desire enthralled by global worship of God. Notice first the fourfold repetition in verses three through five. 
Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. When we were studying this in our home group, someone said it's almost like a chant. You know that like you're, you're at a rugby game or a soccer match or football, sorry, um, and you're just like, yes, 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 you know. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Author and professor Daniel Doriani teaches that Hebrew poetry is built on what is called parallelism, where the second line looks back to the first, completing it, commenting on it, restating it, expanding it, or intensifying it. And when you think about these two lines in that way, you can see that the parallelism is intensifying the idea of the nations praising God. The psalmist uses the plural in the verse line, let the peoples praise you. And then in the second, he uses an emphatic all. Just in case you were confused, I want to see all the peoples of the earth praise God. That's his desire. And the recipient of this praise is a term used throughout Israel's history, Elohim. It's the name for God at the beginning of Genesis 1.1. And it resounds all throughout the history of Israel. You see, the psalm focuses our attention on our God receiving praise from all the peoples around the world. And this desire should resound in the hearts of the redeemed, should it not? Our hearts should long to see the Lord glorified because He is so worthy. As I mentioned earlier, this is where everything is heading towards. One of my favorite authors calls it a a white hot day of worship. That's eternity. And the beautiful thing is that's what will satisfy our hearts the most. To see God, to see his glory, to praise and to worship him. When Paul talks about the salvation of our God in Ephesians chapter 1, he says three times it's to the praise of his glorious grace. Everything that God has done is to bring worship to himself. And it satisfies our hearts And then in the middle of this psalm, though, shows us that this isn't just a verbal expression of praise. But the focus of verse 4 calls for the nations to what? Be glad and sing for joy. See, this is a call for the nations to have hearts that are fully satisfied with God. Hearts that are swept up in joy and gladness. Hearts that worship him in spirit and truth. Now, did you notice the reasons the psalmist gives for this in verse 4? Look there again. He says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For, because, here's the reason I'm going to give you for the nations to be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations. 
See the why the nations are glad and they sing for joy? Because God is a righteous and fair judge and a guide over all the earth. Now we're gonna unpack this a little bit more in a moment because I think when you first hear that, you should say, that's the reason why? Because it seems almost a little strange in our day and age to say that's why we should be glad and sing for joy. But there's a beautiful reason for that. And that is why we should be glad and sing for joy. But what this psalm does right here is it envisions the day when the Gentiles are brought into the people of God and when they are rejoicing in his perfect judgment and his perfect guidance of all the earth. So let me be clear. Do you see the desire at the core of this psalm? It's for the nations to be glad and to sing for joy because God rules the earth. Church, is that the desire of your heart? Is it to see the nations around us worshiping God for who he is and what he has done? Now, I think many of this have experienced the effect of this on our hearts on Friday mornings because we're surrounded, in a sense, by the nations glorifying God. Let me just say, if you sit in the back, I would encourage you every once in a while to sit in the front and just listen to the people of God praising him. It's a beautifully wonderful thing. We have a taste, a taste of that everlasting international worship here on Fridays. So we should have even bigger hearts for it. So at the core of this psalm, Psalm 67 reveals that God desires to be worshiped by all peoples, and it calls for us to pursue a vision of the same thing, to have that be what we long to see take place when we look ahead to our future. But desire is not all this psalm challenges us with. It also challenges us to consider how a vision like this will influences the request we make of God. How does having a vision for the nations worshiping God for all of eternity influence what I do now and what I ask of God now? And that's where as we expand out of this core, we see the psalm addressing. So let's go back to the first stanza in verses one and two. And let's notice that this is a request motivated by the glory of God. First, notice the request of this psalm in verse one. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. Now, we don't know exactly what the term Selah means. Some think it's a pause, meant to give a pause in the song. But we do know it's a term that marks some kind of importance. And because of the nature of Hebrew poetry and what this verse is pointing back to, which we'll see in just a second, I believe we're supposed to see all three of these requests ultimately making the same appeal. 
building on each other, if you will. One request, building to the next, building to the next, to make one request of God. Now first, if you don't already know this, it's important to realize that this verse mirrors what is called the Aaronic blessing of Numbers 6, 23 through 27. There the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says this, he says, speak to Aaron and his sons, these are the priests, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. You see how it's mirroring that blessing given to Israel. In a slightly different order though. But with that in mind, let's examine each portion of this request and see how they're building. What is the first portion? May God be gracious to us. You see, every heart that has truly been redeemed by God knows its need of grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are the very foundation of any relationship with God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have turned their back from God's goodness and rejected him. And were it not for the grace of God upon our lives, we would have no right to make any requests of God. We would have no hope. So we ask God, be gracious to us. Church, let me ask you, how often are we tempted to approach the throne of God without a dependence on grace? As though we have earned something from him. As though there is something in us. Yes, Hebrews 4 tells us to draw near to the throne of grace in confidence, but it's in order that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. You see, it's not anything in us that earns God's grace. It is everything in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's everything from God. And so we ask, all of our requests, we ask, God, be gracious and merciful to me. Be gracious to us. Then notice what this grace then builds towards. May God be gracious to us and bless us. You see, a request for grace leads to a request of blessing from God, of God's favor working towards us. Those are good things to ask for. God, bless us. And we're gonna see why those are good things to ask for in a moment. But what I wanna point out here is that we need to be careful not to confine this request of blessing to something that's only material. Don't confine the request of blessing from God to just health or financial provision or family. It is much more far-reaching than that because the blessings of God is 
every good thing that comes to his people. Blessings of peace in the midst of trials. Blessings of the love of God pouring into our hearts. Blessings of comfort when we're in valleys. Comfort that would not be available were it not for God. Blessings of joy in our morning. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced a time like Paul did where he says, we are always sorrowful yet rejoicing? That's a blessing from God. And I think these are the type of blessings that are primarily in view because of how it builds one more time. Notice the final build of this request. Look at verse one again. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Charles Spurgeon puts it better than I could. He says, God's blessing alone is not all his people crave. They desire a personal consciousness of his favor and pray for a smile from his face. Do you see the progression of this request? The blessing of God is rooted in the grace of God and extends ultimately to the favorable presence of God. God, we want you. We want you. And why does the psalmist request these things though? This is where it gets so good. Why does he ask for grace and blessing and the face of God to shine upon us? Look at verse two. Do you notice the word that? It's a purpose clause. And this purpose statement shows us both the motivation behind the request and the way in which the nations are going to be led to be glad and sing for joy. So notice the flow of verses one and two. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That, so that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. See why he wants to be blessed? That God's way would be known. And do you see what he wants about God's way to be known? See, this is where the parallelism comes in again. Notice it's two lines. That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. The second line is building on the first, helping to understand what that means. That means that the way that he wants to be known among the earth is the way of God's salvation. You see, the psalm is asking for grace and blessing and God's presence so that salvation would spread among the earth. It's undergirded by the motivation of the nations coming to know the glory of God. So let me ask you the question that is always on my heart every time I read this psalm. Is that why I make my requests of God? Do I ask God for peace, for comfort, for health, for my family to do well, 
so that the nations will know his glory and his salvation? So how would this work? How would this work? Let's say you're praying about a job that is difficult. You need some kind of relief. You need God to move in that circumstance. Don't just pray, God, remove me from this circumstance. Let's stop short. Pray, God, remove me from this circumstance so that the people around me will see your glory. Or maybe you just need comfort in that. God has given you the ability to realize that he doesn't want you to be removed, but he'll give you the peace and the comfort you need. When you're praying for peace and comfort, pray, God, give me peace and comfort so that my coworkers, my neighbors, my friends will see that you are good. Amen? Give me that so they will see your salvation because that's what I want for. That's what I long for. Now we need to give a careful caveat here because I don't want you going off thinking, well, as long as I pray so that these things will come true. No, your hearts need to believe it and need to want it. So what do you do if your heart doesn't? Psalm 43, send out your light and your truth so that they will lead me to your holy hill to God, my exceeding joy. God, make me, in me, make you so much the joy of my heart that the reason I long for other things is so that people will know who you are. So challenging, so challenging. But it's so beautiful because it brings joy. There are two places in the New Testament I constantly think about that challenge me so much. Paul and the Apostle John. Paul in Philippians 2. John in 1 John 1, which I think the women's Bible study will get to. Both of them say this to their people. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, by loving Jesus. You see, our joy is tied to God's glory increasing. So, Part of the joy that comes to us is seeing others come to know Jesus Christ. When we have a baptism in a couple of weeks, it's a beautiful time because it's someone proclaiming, I am following Jesus. I have seen his salvation. I am glad and I am singing for joy. And joy rises in our hearts to worship God because we see how good he is to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So our desire for grace and blessing, our desire for the presence of God, should be for the purpose of making the joy of God's salvation known to the nations. And as we bend our hearts towards this motivation, our vision for everlasting international worship grows. Our delight in God grows. Church, do you wanna see your heart rise up in worship? Set a vision in your heart for seeing the nations around us glorify God. Set a vision for salvation to spread. Salvation that redeems man, that reconciles him to God, that gives him a new heart which longs to worship God. Now, consider how the desire that we spoke about at the core in verses three through five 
leads to this as an absolutely necessary request. Look again at verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. Church, judging the nations with equity means that God is fair and he is righteous in that judgment. You see the dilemma? Knowing that way about God is not good news were it not for the salvation of God. If all we knew of God is that he would judge all of us in fairness and in righteousness, that is a dreadful thing. That is a dreadful thing because we deserve the wrath of God for rejecting him. The Bible tells us in Nahum 1.3 that the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Just let that sink in for a moment. There's a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards. It says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's the truth if it weren't for the salvation of God spreading. But his saving power shows us that he laid our iniquity on Christ. He laid our sin on Christ at the cross. Our guilt was on Jesus It wasn't just forgotten. It wasn't just passed over. It was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the reality of the gospel. Jesus paid the payment that I deserve to pay. He took the wrath of God. And now I have joy and the love of God working towards me. What a miracle of grace. What an amazing thing. Isaiah 53 says it this way, he was stricken, pierced, crushed for our sin. See, God's saving power shows us that his justice was served in Christ. It shows us that he is both the just and the justifier because forgiveness comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you do not know Jesus, if you have not trusted in his grace, in his mercy, in his blood at Calvary, turn today and trust in him. It is God's way of salvation. It is God's way of making the nations be glad and sing for joy. So church, you see what our requests should be motivated by. It should be motivated by seeing the nations glorify God. Because as God grants us grace, as God blesses us, as God makes his face to shine upon us, it tells the world around us that he is redeeming a people for himself. It shows the nations his way of salvation. And by God's grace, they will turn, they will believe, they will be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, and they will be brought into the people of God, worshiping Jesus forever and ever. See, the glory of God is spread, hearts are redeemed, and worship overflows for all of eternity. And we still have one 
more stanza to look at. Such a fascinating ending to this psalm. Look at verses six and seven, where I see a confidence grounded in the purpose of God. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now, verse six can be slightly confusing. First, let's remember this is poetry, okay? So it's meant to give imagery. For our purposes this morning, I don't wanna spend a lot of time, although I could probably spend a lot of time giving arguments for different positions, but what I wanna do is show you two interpretations of verse six and just share my conviction of what it means. Let you go out and research on your own. So some believe this verse shows that this psalm was meant to be sung during the harvest. That it's sung at the end of the harvest season when Israel looks out and sees that the Lord has made the earth increase and they see the blessing of God and they praise God that the nations will come to know him through that. That's possible. Others see it as a future eschatological fulfillment. That is, this psalm is looking forward to the day in which all nations are worshiping God and the earth is renewed and restored. Which one is it? I'm convinced it's pointing to a future eschatological fulfillment. The reason I'm convinced of that is because the focus of this psalm, if you notice, is on salvation, judgment, and guidance over all the nations. And these ideas are consistently repeated throughout the Bible in connection with Christ's return and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. So I believe the imagery of the earth yielding its increase should be seen in light of the spread of the glory of God in light of the renewed creation that Romans 8 speaks about. So that's what I think verse 6 is saying. But what strikes me, though, for our reasons this morning, even beyond which one of those is true, what strikes me is the confidence of the psalmist. Did you pick up on it? Notice what he says, verses 6 and 7. The earth has yielded its increase. You see what he goes from? He goes from God, be gracious to us, bless us, and then by the end of it, he's saying, it's already happened. The earth has yielded its increase. Gets even better. He says, God, our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Twice repeated, God shall bless us. There is no question about it. God will answer this prayer. What confidence. Where does this come from? It comes from knowing that these are the things that the Lord delights in. It's grounded in the purpose of God. You see, when we request grace and blessing upon us for the sake of spreading the glory of God to the nations, for the ends of the earth to fear the Lord, for the nations to worship him, we can be confident that God will answer that prayer because God has and will and will continue to bless his people to bring the nations to worship him. 
He will make salvation known to the ends of the earth through his people, and he will make the nations be glad and sing for joy. That image, that picture we read from Revelation 7 is meant to show us that will take place. A multitude of nations from every tongue and tribe will worship the Lord for all of eternity. And we will enjoy that like nothing else. This brings me to the challenge I see for the close of this. Psalm 67 puts forward a strong desire for the nations to be glad and to sing for joy. To worship God for who he is and how he rules over the earth. It shows us how this desire influences our requests and how we can be confident that God will cause the nations to worship him. So what is the challenge? Simple. Set a vision in your heart for seeing everlasting international worship. Church, long for the nations to be glad and sing for joy. Expand the vision outside of just your heart worshiping, outside of your family's heart worshiping, outside of even just our church worshiping, to the nations, because that is what God desires. Every nation, tongue, and tribe worshiping Him, declaring His power and His glory. And let's remind ourselves, church, that our worship our delighting in God, our joy of being in his presence can be what leads someone who walks in this room to see the salvation of God to turn and be saved and become part of the every nation worshiping him forever. Let that be our vision now. Let it lead us to pursue growing in worship, delighting in and responding to the glory of God as a church together. Please stand with me and pray together. Our Father in heaven, we lift your name up. Will you make your name hallowed in our hearts? Make your name holy. Make your name exalted. Make who you are clear as day on our minds that you are glorious, that you are majestic, that you are powerful, that you are loving, that you are kind, so that you are good, that you are just. God, show us your glory and give us grace to worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>